Well, welcome to week number one of our series, Unwrapped. We're starting today, and throughout this entire month of December, we're going to be working on preparing our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. And we're going to do that by unwrapping some truths that really will help us get ready to welcome him into our lives. And today we're going to be thinking about, on this first Sunday of Advent, uh, second day of December, we're going to be thinking about unwrapping the season, about just entering into the season, about how can we approach these next few weeks in such a way uh, that we are actually preparing room in our hearts and our lives for Jesus. And this phrase, prepare him room, is a familiar one. You probably know it comes from the song that we sing this time of year, Joy to the World, one of our, our really most beloved Christmas carols. Uh, remember the lyrics, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. That's how that song begins. And Isaac Watts, who was the composer who wrote this song, wrote those words as he was thinking, I think, about a very familiar part of the first Christmas story where Joseph and a very pregnant Mary arrive in Bethlehem and they can't find a place to stay. And when you read that part of the story, it's a really strange picture, isn't it? I mean, when you really stop to think about it, I mean, here we have God's own son, creator of heaven and earth. He's coming into the world he created. He's about to be born, and there's no room. I mean, no room for him. And the best we could do is a manger, which most scholars think is most likely a cave cut out of a hill, where the animals went to you know, get a little bit of shelter. There was no room for Jesus in Bethlehem on that first night. And yet when we stop to think about that and we shake our heads at that, we also have to get honest and say that here we are 2,000 years later, and how often is there still really no room for Jesus in many of our own lives at Christmas time? See, Christmas has become, for most of us, I mean, can we talk about this? Has become like this nonstop sprint from Thanksgiving all the way through New Year, right? Amen? Amen. And for some of you, it actually didn't start at Thanksgiving. It started at Halloween. <laughs> I mean, there's just so much to do, right? I mean, it's, and in fact, it is law that you have to do all these things. Isn't it true? You got to get a tree and you got to decorate it better than you did last year. You know, you got to hang lights more than you hung last year. <laughs> You got to buy presents and you got to wrap those Christmas presents for everybody, even the people you don't like. You know, you got, you got to bake cookies. You got to send cards again to people you don't really care about. Um, you got to visit relatives. You got to go to a parties, a whole lot of parties to attend. There are just so many things to do. Aren't you exhausted already? It's only the 2nd of December. And uh, then on top of that, if we haven't watched at least five or six Christmas movies, some of us, it's not really Christmas. And, you know, what ends up kind of happening is how can we finally uh, possibly stop and actually celebrate the arrival of Jesus? We're just so busy. This reminded me um, this week of a story that I heard a few years ago. It actually took place in 2007. The Washington Post conducted an experiment, and they hired a guy. Some of you will know who this is. His name is Joshua Bell. He's one of the uh, most uh, noted concert violinist in the entire world. They hired him to play a concert during rush hour on a subway platform in downtown D.C. And he was dressed just in simple plain clothes. He was standing next to a trash can. He has his violin case out, you know, on the, the floor there for people to throw in tips. 
I mean, this is Joshua Bell, and if you don't know who he is, Joshua Bell, when he plays in a concert, he gets paid about $1,000 a minute. And this is who this guy is. I mean, he's really one of the best in the world. This violin that he's playing with on this subway platform is actually a $3.5 million Stradivarius. It's one of a kind. He's on this subway platform. He actually plays for 45 minutes. They've got cameras set up. You can go watch some video of it. It's out there on the internet if you want to. And as he plays, 1,100 people walk by. Now, how many of those people do you think actually stopped and actually listened and actually gave him like a tip? And the answer is 20, just 20. And he earned $32 for 45 minutes. But everyone else just walked right by. Didn't look at him, didn't stop and listen, didn't notice, just walked by. There's something absolutely extraordinary that's standing right there, right in front of them, and they totally miss it. Well, why, why, why did they miss it? Why didn't they notice and stop and listen to this incredible world-class talent right there in front of them? Well, it was rush hour. I mean, rush hour, you, you, got, you, you got to get to work. Everybody's rushing to work. Everybody has a bunch of tasks they got to do that day. Everybody's thinking about the projects to finish and the phone calls to make and the meetings to attend. All these things are filling their minds, and it's leaving no room for the incredible talent of Joshua Bell to sink in. And honestly, isn't that exactly the dilemma that we often face during Christmas? We have a to-do list, and it's like 1,000 pages long, And it often ends up being this crazy, frenzied sprint for a month. And at the end of it, we realize we didn't take time to stop and notice that something extraordinary happened 2,000 years ago. And we end up missing what Christmas is all about. And we're a lot like those subway riders who miss the incredible talent of Joshua Bell. No time to stop, no time to think, no time to marvel, no time to worship the one whom the season is really all about. So uh, what are we going to do? Well, I was thinking this week about how an often forgotten character in the Christmas story can help us with that. And you might be surprised when I tell you his name because you don't think he's a part of the Christmas story. This is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, I actually think, can help us prepare Jesus' room. I think you'll see at the end of this talk uh, that John is actually a very important Advent character, but we don't think about him that way, right? He's not in any of our Christmas carols. Uh, he's not on in any of the, the cards that we send out. He, he's never in a manger scene. And when you think about it for a little bit, you might understand why. I mean, <laughs> he's just kind of a different guy. He doesn't have the mystique of the Magi. He doesn't have the glory of the angels. He doesn't have you know, Joseph's nobility or any of the drama or the beauty of this young girl, the Virgin Mary. He's, he's not quaint and kind and homey like the shepherds. John is rough. He lives in the desert. He wears camel hair or clothing, which if you don't know what that is, it's just extremely uncomfortable. No one would wear that on purpose if they could do anything else. And he eats locusts for dinner. How do you like to have that in your lunchbox? <laughs> Grasshoppers, you know, just bite the head off. and Wild honey, you know, that's on top of maybe that helped him out. But he's just a strange guy. 
But here's the thing. Let's stop to think about this. He's actually central to Advent. He's actually in the beginning of all four Gospels. You can go check it out for yourself. He's actually present, in a way, at the story of Jesus' birth because he is there and he's announcing the way. And in fact, in one Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, he's the first one to celebrate Advent. Do you remember this story? Remember how... Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth and to tell her that she is now pregnant with this baby. And John, he leaps in his mother's womb, recognizing the presence of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told. So really, there's a sense in which John is the first one to welcome Jesus into the world. So just think about this. John... He's in every gospel narrative. He really is at the center of the message of Advent, and he really is important. But the question is why? Why is he so important? What role does John play at Advent? I want you to see this as we read our way through most of Matthew chapter 3. Here's where we start, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts, everybody say yum, and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So this is John's role. This is why God uh, caused him to be born, to prepare the world, to prepare hearts for the coming of Jesus, to prepare him room. Now, how does John do that? Well, actually, it's pretty straightforward. He does it by preaching one simple message. At the heart of his message is one simple word, and that word is repent. Repent. For some of us, that's the R word. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. It's actually not a very popular message. You know, if you go around, just try this tomorrow at work, telling people that you've been, you would like to talk with them about repentance. See where that conversation goes. See, most people see it as a very negative word. It's like you, you hear it, you can almost picture the Saturday Night Live church lady. Remember her? She's wagging her finger at you. She's piously telling you to repent. Most of us view repentance as a sign of weakness. You say, I don't think that way. Well, how come you don't ever want to apologize? How come when you apologize, a lot of times you say something like, well, if I hurt you, which really means if you have a problem with what I did, I'm sorry that you have a problem with what I did. I'm not really that sorry about what I said or what I did. Are you guys with me on this one? You know what I'm talking about? Or you just don't want to say anything because you know you did that yesterday. <laughs> we don't like to repent. We, we see repentance as a sign of weakness. We hope we'll never need to do it. We, we, we think that repentance is what happens to people when they're disgraced. And if we have to do it, well, at least we hope we won't ever have to do it very often. But what I want you to see is that John and actually the whole Bible looks at repentance in a very different way. See, according to the Bible, repentance is the fuse that detonates the love and power of God in your life. The message of repentance is not negative at all. 
In fact, according to the Bible, repentance is the key to life change. You want to change your life? Repent. That's what the Bible says. Repentance is the key to entering into and living in God's glorious kingdom. And unless you think this is John, he's this isolated kind of crazy prophet who comes along and does this, and it's just his thing, go and read the Gospels again, and you will see this is the central message of Jesus. He comes and he begins. We see, you can just go to the next chapter and you'll see this. He comes and he begins to preach that God's kingdom is near. Therefore, everybody say it, repent. Let's just say that again because I know you don't want to. But therefore, repent. That was Jesus' message. Jesus constantly preached God's kingdom has arrived and our response in recognition of the arrival of the kingdom of God, is we should repent. As a pastor, I've seen this year after year for over 30 years now. It's like person A, person B in church. And person A, you you watch, they're growing in their faith. They're experiencing life change. God is doing things in their lives. They're reaching new levels of maturity in Christ. And then person B, who's there the same amount of time, week after week, month after month, just stays the same. And when you dig below the surface and you ask a few questions and you start discerning what's going on, you figure out there's one difference. And person A is a person who practices repentance. Martin Luther, 1517, we celebrated 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation last year, when he nailed those 95 theses, that important document to the church door in Wittenberg. His very first thesis was about repentance. In fact, this is what he said. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. How many of you think that repentance is what you do when you come to Jesus and then you move on to other things? See, Luther believed that repentance is not just the door into Christianity. He would say all of life is repentance. Repentance is something we need to learn how to do if we're ever going to change because it is that fuse which detonates the power and love of God in our lives. And so we need to learn how to repent. We, we need to listen to John's message. And I want us to see what he's telling us here in Matthew 3. What, what does it mean to repent? What's involved in repentance? What does it look like to repent? And how can repentance help us prepare for, for Christmas? Well, I want to show you three things that answer uh, the question, how do I prepare room in my life for, for Jesus? And these are things all about repentance. These are all about the kind of life we should be living. And I want to say especially now, and I just want to tell you now, if you will dig into repentance, especially at the beginning of this season, you will enjoy Christmas so much more. You say, well, I don't think I need to repent. That's why you need to do it, because you don't think you need to repent. <laughs> I'm just telling you, okay? I don't care who you are. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know one thing. You need to repent. You know why I know that? Because I need to repent. We all need to repent. So how do we do this? Well, three things from John. The first one is this. You can write this down in your message notes. I get honest about who I truly am before the face of God. Okay, so in Matthew 3, all these people are coming out to John in the wilderness. They're repenting of their sins. They're getting baptized as a sign of being cleansed from their sins. And then some Pharisees and some Sadducees come out. And look what John says to them. This is verse 7. He says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees 
coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now again, John, John is not talking to a group of politicians. We would get that, right? If I mean, he said that to politicians. That was supposed to be funny, but maybe I'll, I'll have to try it on 930 service, see if they like that. John was not addressing the prison population of Judea or anything like that. John was talking to the pastors and the bishops. You know, he was talking to the religious leaders of the day, the people that everybody looked up to. And he tells them, you're a sack of snakes. Maybe if it was December, John would have then said, Merry Christmas. (laughs) But what is he doing here? And I want you to see this is not name-calling. Uh, This is not, he's not making fun of them, ridiculing them. What John is trying to do is to shock them into self-discovery, into being honest. Because this is where repentance begins. Repentance is about getting real, about seeing who you truly are. It's about seeing yourself as God sees you. Now again, remember who these people are. They're religious leaders, but they're very, actually very different. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the Pharisees were, the, were like lay religious leaders. Um, they took Scripture very seriously. They were usually pretty wealthy, so they had time to study the Scriptures and really get into it because they weren't always having to provide for them, you know, their, their physical needs. They had wealth. Um, they were known for keeping the law. The Sadducees were, were the social elites. They were at the top of the top of the top. They were the 1% of the 1%. And they were kind of the intellectual and spiritual leaders of the day. But what these two groups had in common was one thing. Uh, they were really good at um, image management. They had spent their entire lives carefully constructing their image so that everyone saw them as righteous. Everyone looked up to them as role models. And this is how they viewed themselves. See, sometimes that's our problem. Sometimes our carefully constructed images, self-images, blind us to who we really are. And sometimes, like in their case, we need to see reality like We need to see beyond the facade that we've built. We need to see into our own brokenness and sin like the Pharisees and Sadducees did. And this is where repentance began. See, we we may not be people like that, quite like that. Nobody in our day is particularly trying to be overtly religious, but we are still always carefully constructing images, building an image, crafting this perfect picture of ourselves that we can show other people, right? And one of the features, this has become really obvious. This has always happened in, our, in all cultures, really, but it's become really obvious in our social media culture, right? And our social media culture gives us all these opportunities to present ourselves to one another at our best, right? I mean, and this is what Instagram and Facebook are really all about, aren't they? You know, supposedly they're about relationships, you know, about making friends and sharing our lives with friends. But don't we use these things to craft and curate and display for the world to see the very best version of ourselves? I mean, I guarantee if you go on a vacation and you take a family picture and your eyes are closing one of the pictures, that's not the picture you put up on social media, right? 
or if your face looks weird or something like that. We, we put all these things up on social media that we think will make us look better. Sometimes it's our education. Sometimes it's a career accomplishments. Sometimes it's the places we've gone, like our vacations. You know, if you go to a cool place for vacation, you're sure going to put that up. But like if you don't have much money this year and you have to vacation in Turlock, you're not putting any pictures <laughs> up of that, right? So why do we do this? Somebody said, what's wrong with Turlock? <laughs> Pastor Jay will explain it to you afterwards, whoever said that. I just, I don't have any words. I mean, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's, it's not just Facebook and Instagram. I was kind of reminded of this this week because we had, a, we had all our kids out for Thanksgiving. And so uh, Dana arranged for someone to take our picture, a family picture. And uh, I experienced something that a lot of us experience. Um, I'll just ask it this way. How many of you will kind of think to yourself or I say out loud, I look terrible in photographs. Would you be willing to raise your hand? You look horrible. Look at this. Most of the people in here, you guys are terrible in photographs. <laughs> hmm. Well, I feel like that a lot of times, right? Now, now, just think about the logic of that statement. I look bad in a photograph as if that, the photograph was somehow divorced from the reality of this universe. <laughs> you know, that cold, cruel-hearted camera takes bad pictures of me because the camera hates me. That's kind of how we, we tend to think, right? Instead, we, we should probably be saying, well, this is me, <laughs> It has to be. I mean, because the camera took a picture of me. This is not some other evil twin invading my body. That must be what I look like. The other thing that always happens, because I just did this. When you have a picture in a group, as soon as you see a picture and you want to decide if this is a good picture or not, what's the one thing that matters? How I look. I don't care if anybody else has their eyes closed or if they're making a face. If I look good, that's a good picture. And all God's people said it. <laughs> well, what are we doing? Well, we have this image. We have this facade. It's how we see ourselves. It is very hard for us to see the true self in the mirror, isn't it? To come to grips with the answer to that question, well, who am I really? I mean, who am I when no one else is watching? What's that self that no one else sees? You know, the jealousy in my heart when I see someone else getting ahead and it makes me so angry or just the anger that I let fly only in private or the lust, the pride, the self-centeredness that comes out in many different ways. See, repentance begins when you start to see your true self in the mirror, when you come to this like shock of self-realization that's very hard. We're always trying to hide from that, right? I mean, you just go back to the very first sin in all the history of the world, Adam and Eve's sin, and what do they do? They hide. They cover up. They make the fig leaves. They're putting up a facade. At the very beginning, that's the nature of sin. We hide. We pretend. The problem is, you read the Bible, you see this, when we hide our sins, we actually hurt ourselves. We, we rob ourselves of freedom. In fact, healing from sin is only possible when we face it honestly. Lamentations 2.14 says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. Jeremiah is just saying 
the prophets were telling the people what they wanted to hear. And by doing that, they were robbing them of what they really needed because only as their sins were exposed would their fortunes have the opportunity to be restored. Exposure leads to restoration. F. Dale Bruner is a commentator on Matthew. He's written like a thousand pages on this, this, this gospel. And in one of his commentaries, he says this, the remedy for sin is not denying sin's presence or explaining it away, but openly admitting it. We are free from sin only when we face it. We disown sin only by owning up to it. Sin is remitted when sin is admitted. Do you hear what he's saying? The only way you'll ever get rid of sin is if you come clean and you own it. The only way to become a better you is to face and own the reality of who you actually are in the present. Now, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, the Apostle John in 1 John 1 calls this walking in the light. And he says, if you confess your sins, if you're open and admit your sins, God will forgive your sins. God will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And John says, that's walking in the light. And walking in the light is the only way to have freedom from sin. Sin has its power in darkness. Sin has power when it's secret, when it's unconfessed. And you only get free from sin when it's exposed. And John the Baptist knows this. That's why he calls these people a brood of vipers. He's trying to shock them into honesty, to self-awareness. And he wants to do the same for us. And he knows that's the only way we get room in our hearts for Jesus. Something else that's here, not only that, honest repentance is actually good for our health. I just want to kind of throw this one in here. Um, The Bible tells us when we confess our sins, it's good for us emotionally and physically. Um, we, We get this insight from a very familiar story in the Old Testament. You'll remember this story. King David, he sleeps with a woman named Bathsheba. She's not his wife. He then has her husband Uriah killed to cover up his sin. He then lives for a year with unconfessed sin. And during that entire year, David looks back and says, I was miserable. He says, I actually felt physically ill. And one day, of course, the story goes, Nathan the prophet comes. Nathan puts his finger in the king's chest and says, you're the man. And David finally confesses. Listen to how David describes this in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. He says, when I kept silent, in other words, when my sin was in the darkness, when I was not facing reality, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Am I describing anybody's life right now? For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I I came into the light. I walked out of the darkness. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David goes on to talk about the health that began to flow back into his body and his heart. See, there's freedom in exposing our sin. There's actually freedom and repentance. There's actually health and honesty. And I think there's a sense in which that's why all these people were flocking to John as he told them to repent. I got a picture up here. It's 450 some years old. It's a a painting by Peter Bruegel, a Dutch master. And it just shows the crowds that gathered around John. I mean, why would everybody want to go hear somebody say stuff like that? He's yelling at people to repent, but they're all coming out to him. Why? Well, don't we all sort of kind of know that that's what we need? 
that it would be better if we unburden ourselves from what we've been hiding, that if we get honest about the things that we've been pretending about. Some of you may be saying, well, does that mean I need to confess my sin to everyone publicly? And the short answer to that is no. It does mean you need to be honest before God. And sometimes you do need to confess to certain people. And it's always wise if you have people in your life with whom you can get really honest about your struggles, a a trusted group of friends that you can talk about the darkest parts of your life. That's why James in his letter says, if you confess your sins to one another, you will be healed. So have you done that? I mean, do you have friends like that? Are there people you can talk to that you can be open and honest with? I mean, freedom is found when you come into the light, when you get honest about who you are. And this is John's first point. Repentance begins with honesty, with, with yourself, about yourself, with, with God, and with other people where, where need be. And if you want to prepare room to truly welcome Jesus, you need to clear out the guilt of sin. Amen. Second, preparing room for Jesus means I get to the root of my sin. Again, Jesus, or John, the Baptist, calls these Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers. He gets them in touch with reality. And then verses 8 through 10, he says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, listen to this. When we think about repentance, what we almost always think about is changing our behaviors, right? We, we think about a long list of don'ts and an equally long list of do's. And, and this is partly true. Repentance is stopping bad behavior and starting good behavior. That's why John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and so I want you to write down true, true repentance involves behavior change. Because if you haven't really changed, you haven't really repented. But it's much more than that. And John wants us to see that. It's about getting to the root of our sin. That's the analogy John gives here. He, he says sin is sort of like a tree. And just like a tree, sin has roots. And if you're ever going to truly get sin out of your life, you need to not only tack the fruit, but also go down to the roots. Some of us have like cut down trees, you know, in our front yard or backyard. And we thought the tree was gone. (laughs) And then a little while later down the road, you know, we look up and here comes the tree again, right? We, We didn't get rid of the roots. And has anybody ever had that happen in your life? See, to get rid of the fruit, truly, those things that displease God, you have to dig down and dig up the roots, John says you need to lay the axe at the root of the tree. And, and this involves something we've talked about here at Southwinds before. You have to deal with uh, what is called the sin beneath the sin. See, repentance is like doing open heart surgery. It's not like taking a bath, <laughs> you know, using some soap, putting on some deodorant. True repentance is deep work. True repentance involves pulling sin out at the roots. And this is hard. This means you have to look at your life sometimes and try to understand some things that you may not want to understand, that you may not want to admit. 
I was trying to think of some examples of, of what this would look like, and it's going to be different for every person. Uh, but I was just thinking back in, in my experience as a parent, and one of the things I remember when our kids were younger is that I, I found myself getting irritated more often at, at bedtime than at other times of the day. Because, you know, it's always a struggle to get the kids into bed, the little brats, you know. And, <laughs> and you know, you, you sometimes find you're getting angry. They just won't do what you said. They take too long to brush their teeth. They wander off and do something else. And, you know, and, and then you feel bad because you've yelled at them or you've said something to them you don't want to say. Why does that happen? Well, I think it kind of starts here. Every parent knows that when the kids are in bed, the parents get to play, Right? <laughs> That's when life begins again, or at least for a couple hours. Netflix comes on. You can finally start enjoying your life. And so, you know, you can try to beat yourself up and get angry at yourself for not being nice to your children that you love. But when they disobey, it just happens again and just back and forth. How do you stop it? And if you will stop and ask the question and really think about the answer for you, why am I so angry what is at the root of my anger? If you get down to the heart of things, maybe, maybe it's that I just deeply love comfort. I live for comfort. And when they're in bed, I get a moment's peace and I care more about that peace than I care about maybe their feelings. And maybe God will ask you, why do you want comfort so much? Why are you taking refuge in Netflix and not in me? And God can start doing deep heart work. I mean, this may not be your situation, but you're getting to the root. Here's another example. What about anxiety? Let's say you're anxious and it's happening quite a bit. And you read the scriptures that say, don't worry. You know you're not supposed to. There are scriptures that say, you know, God takes care of the birds of the air. And you get frustrated. Why am I always so anxious? And it's like, okay, my money's in the stock market. And every time it drops, I, I, I have trouble sleeping. You know, I, I fall apart. And I tell myself, trust God, trust God, trust God. But it doesn't seem to help. What do I do? Well, maybe look at the root of sin. Maybe follow the branches down to the root and ask yourself, why? Do I get so anxious? And maybe it has something to do with control. Maybe it has something to do with you, you trust money more than you trust God. And as you understand why, whatever it is for you, you're dealing with the root of your sin. You're putting the ax to the root. You're taking it serious. It's not on the surface. How about busyness? You know, um, we probably don't think in America as bu of busyness as a sin. But I just want to tell you, quite often it is. In fact, it's kind of funny. We're, we're proud that we're busy. We'll brag about it. I just don't have time to do this and that. And that's like a badge of honor that I got. I'm so important. I got so many things to do, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Don't look at me like I'm the only one. <laughs> We prize busyness in our culture, but isn't it true that busyness often becomes a way to not stop and examine our lives? Can you get honest with yourself and say, I keep busy because I don't want to think about my heart? Some of us always have noise playing in our lives. The TV is on, music is playing, always, 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 always. And I know we're different people, we're not all the same, and you don't have to be me, and I'm not going to be you. But I'm just telling you, if you always have noise in your life, that's not good. 
I'm just telling you as your pastor, if you always have noise in your life, you are hiding from something. I feel very confident in saying that. I don't know what it is, but I do believe it's something. I mean, at the very least, how can you be still and know that God is God as the Scripture commands if there's noise always in your life? See, heart work, getting down to the roots, means that I will stop and ask myself, why do I feel like I always have to be busy? Why do I always have to have something to do? Why do I always have to have noise in my life? Do I not want to face some issues in my life? Or am I using my busyness to hide my self-centered heart? You know, practically, I see this all the time as we serve God as a church. Busyness becomes an excuse not to do things the Bible clearly commands all believers to do. You know, people say, I don't have time to serve. I don't have the resources to give. And see, at Christmas, I mean, we're going to have some opportunities to do these things just coming up. I mean, you're going to hear more about this, but, you know, our Christmas offering begins today. Christmas is a season of giving. Are we going to enter into that as God's people, all of us, every one of us, and do what God leads us to do? If you say, well, I I can't give, why? Well, it usually ends up being I just need to take care of me first. Or maybe you say, I can't serve. Why? It usually boils down to I'm too busy with my agenda. Now, again, if this doesn't apply to you, just let it go on by. But, but whatever the issue, we need to train ourselves to put the ax to the roots, to get beneath the image, to look for the sin beneath the sin, to ask the question, why do I do what I do? And this is what it means to open up room in our hearts to celebrate Christmas. Uh, one of my favorite Puritans is, was a pastor named Thomas Chalmers, and he tells this story uh, about how he would get upset at his church because they weren't changing. He wanted them to repent, and he saw them out there, and they're sleeping with the wrong people. They're using their money selfishly. They're not going to church where they can be fed and worship. And he kept pounding harder on them, repent and repent, until finally he realized this isn't working, and he realized why. He realized that the root of sin is in what Puritans called the affections. And we don't use that word like that that much, but let me put it this way. The reason you do what you do is your heart loves what it loves. And so Chalmers, as he realized that, his sermons began to change, and he started dealing with the heart. He started focusing his attention on going after the idols that people have in their hearts, idols of control, idols of comfort, et cetera, et cetera. And he saw, amazingly, his people began to change. See, this is where we need to get to at the roots. We need to look at what do we love and why do we love these things, and that's where we need to deal with it. It's at that level. See, it's more than just cleaning up the outside. It's just a kind of deep heart surgery. Third thing I want you to see, as I prepare room for Christ when I look to Jesus as my only source of healing, Uh, John 3, verses 11 and 12 say, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's kind of interesting. I want you to notice what John is doing here. He's saying his baptism isn't enough. 
He says his message of repentance is not enough. See, we know John is important. He's in all four Gospels. He's preparing the way for, for, for Jesus to come. We've already said his message of repentance is the fuse that detonates the power and love of God in our lives, right? But John says the message of repentance is not the end of the story. He says if you're ever going to be free from sin, ever turn your life around, ever experience real life change, he says you must look beyond me. And that's what John was always doing. He, he always was saying, don't look at me. I'm just pointing the way. You have to look beyond repentance. You have to look toward the Savior. You have to look toward Jesus. Why? Well, there's two things that Jesus offers us that John can't. The first thing is Jesus gives us power. Notice he says, the one who comes after me, that's Jesus, will baptize you not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's saying that Jesus will actually give you the resources to change your life, give you the power to change. John says, I can't do that for you. You need the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus will bring. And in this way, John is sort of like the Old Testament law, and Jesus is like the gospel. The Old Testament law can tell you what to do and what not to do but it cannot give you the power to either do or not do those things, right? It's only the gospel. It's only in the gospel. And Jesus comes and he dies and he's raised from the dead that we find the power to change. It's sort of like this old hymn, and we probably don't know this too many of us. We don't sing it as much these days, but part of the lyric says this, do this and live the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. See, John is bidding us to fly. Jesus is giving us wings. There's an old scholar named William Temple who used to say this. It's no use giving me a play like Hamlet and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no use giving me a life like Jesus and telling me to live like that. Jesus could do it, but I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and dwell in me, then I could live a life like his. And that is the gospel. It is the power to repent. It is the resource that you need to actually live differently, and it's only available in Christ. And Jesus came into this world at Christmas with all of his power and all of his love, and he lived the life we should have lived so that he could not only give us forgiveness, but actually also give us the power we need to live the way he calls us to live. Jesus also gives us, secondly, a new identity. I just want to tell you, we, we spent time earlier this fall for five weeks talking about this, but you need a new identity if you're ever going to repent. And if you don't get that, write those words down. You're going to understand it better in a minute. Now, in the next scene, Jesus gets baptized, and baptism really is all about a new identity, right? Here's what it says in verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So Jesus goes into the water. He's baptized, and this voice from heaven comes and says those amazing words. This is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with him. And we know as we read the Gospels that Jesus rooted his identity in that voice. 
We also know that Christianity offers us that same identity. In Christ, you can have that same joy of hearing the Father say to you, you are my beloved, precious son or daughter. In you, I am well pleased. And until you understand that this is your identity, you will never repent. You will be afraid to. You know why? Listen, so many of us, our identities are wrapped up in our behaviors and what we do. You are what you do. That's why you can't admit that you fail because if you admit that you have failed, you are, you, are, you think, admitting that you are a failure, that that's your identity. But what if you're not your behavior? What if your identity is rooted in something outside of your behavior? What if your identity is rooted in the loving voice of God that says, you are my beloved child. I'm well pleased with you. See, when you know that and when you sin and you will sin, say, I will sin. Then you will have the freedom to say, I have sinned. God, please forgive me. Because you know that is not at the heart of who you are in Christ. And you can rest in that relationship. Someone said, we no longer have to be in sales and marketing about ourselves. You know, we can just be who God has made us to be. We can say, yes, I've failed because our identity is not about our behavior. Now, Tim Keller puts it this way, to be loved but not known, this is comforting but superficial. But to be known and not loved, this is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And ultimately, it gives us the power to repent. See, we can now be honest because it's not who we are. Our identity is in Christ. See, this is what John is saying to us. And I think if John were here today and he was talking to us, and he knew that we were a, a people getting ready to once more celebrate Christmas, he would say, you can prepare room for Jesus in your life if you'll do one thing, and that is repent. Get honest with God. Let him speak truth to your heart and dig down to the roots. And when you think, I can't, I can't deal with this, then know, always know, always know that you can find your healing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord for us today. We receive it. And all God's people say, Amen. would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, thank you for this message of repentance. And Lord, it may seem kind of like an odd Christmas message. But Lord, we know we need to prepare you room and Lord, where we need to do business with you in areas of our lives that need to change, maybe things that have deep roots, maybe things that are in our lives that are replacing you, things that are hurting us and hurting our families. Lord, I pray that you would help us with those things. Lord, help us through the gospel because the gospel gives us power to be honest. The gospel gives us power to uproot those things that are deep in our lives. The gospel gives us power to be healed. Lord, help us to repent. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people said,